This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Postal Service tells commercial customers that higher rates for slower service are necessary to keep the agency from running out of cash. That's a key part of the 10-year plan for reform it released back in March. But mailers say the plan is a tough sell that will accelerate a decline in mail volume already made worse by the pandemic. For more analysis of that plan and its chances of getting off the ground, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with a senior fellow at the Lexington Institute, Paul Steidler. The brunt of the plan relies on the Postal Service taking actions that are going to change its financial fortunes here. And it's a pretty bold goal that's out there, revising the $160 billion projected loss over a 10-year period, though about 36% of that the $57-58 billion from retiree health benefits and related legislation is dependent on Congress. The thing I would also point out about that is even if Congress doesn't act on that, most of the other steps that are taken are going to be things that the Postal Service can improve. In other words, those are real costs that the Postal Service has but they haven't been paying for those costs, specifically making contributions to the Retiree Health Benefits Fund since fiscal year 2010 here. That said, there's an awful lot of unanswered questions in the plan. And these are really things that I think the Postal Service is going to have to provide answers to the media, to Congress, and to its customers, and and to the American public about. There's a lot of discussion about $40 billion in investments over the next 10 years. It's really not broken down at all between mail and packages. It would seem that the overwhelming preponderance of that money is going to go into the package work that the Postal Service has, just given the minimal discussion that they have in the report about steps to improve mail processing That is somewhat distressing, given how poor mail service has been, given that mail by volume is still 16 times the volume of packages out there, given that mail is something you're dependent on the Postal Service for, in that the Postal Service has a monopoly on mail delivery. That raises a lot of disturbing questions about that $40 billion. It also seems that they're largely throwing in the towel as far as quality mail service goes. That's a big deal. That's a lot of mail. The service standards are already went down significantly in 2012. They haven't been met since 2012. They're going to go down further. Every time you lower service standards, you create less reverence, less respect for that product, if you will. One of the things that I think the Postal Service is going to have to address is, why have you not considered a plan that would restore the quality of first-class mail service, or at least enable it to meet the 2012 standards, the lower standards of 2012 that were put into effect from many decades before, what would it have cost to get to that? What are some ways that that could have been achieved? Because the Postal Service does point out that the price of a first-class letter in the U.S. is a bargain compared to most other countries out there. And a lot of people would be willing to pay, you know, a dime more to continue to send letters and know that something's going to get there on time, that they're not going to be charged a late fee for a credit card bill or some other high cost disruption. And the fact that that alternative has not been put forward here is pretty striking. One thing that I wanted to get your thoughts on 
and you mentioned it earlier, the $160 billion over the next 10 years and what you framed as kind of a pessimistic look on mail volume. In looking at this, you know, I'm very mindful of how the past year played out. Early in the pandemic, the Postal Service was very pessimistic about its ability to keep operating. A year ago, they were having some pretty dire forecasts of having a very precipitous drop in mail volume, and as a result, said it could have run out of cash at some point last year, and that, of course, isn't the case, and they're in a better cash situation than they've been previously. Does that, in your mind, kind of inform some of the assumptions and some of the forecasts that are baked into this 10-year plan? The Postal Service's financial forecasts since April of last year have been way off the mark. They projected that they would lose $22 billion a year or up to that as part of the pandemic. Their fiscal year for 2020 was in sync with what they expected. There were concerns they would run out of cash by September. That did not occur. More recently, and this is what I'm more troubled by, because a pandemic is such a unique, tumultuous, difficult-to-predict situation, for the first five months of fiscal year 2021, they have actually made a small amount of money compared with a projected loss of $2.4 billion. So right now, for fiscal year 2021, they're, 2.4, they're doing $2.4 billion better than they budgeted, than they projected, than they anticipated coming into this year. That underscores the fact that the current forecasting, the recent forecasting over the past year has not been good. That's putting it quite kindly. That underscores the need for documenting more of the numbers and more of the thinking in this report. You're expecting a $160 billion loss over the uh, next decade. That sounds reasonable. That sounds in line with other things that have been said. But why? What are some of the factors that are going to change that? You say that $40 billion is needed for investment. Why? Where's it going to? How's it going to be funded? Are mail users going to pay for that? That's going to go for package services? Is it going to be broken down by service area? Is it going to be broken down as it should be between mail and package users and broken down on a product basis? I mean, there needs to be more discussion about that, A, because the numbers are so large to begin with and so significant and so central to the plan, and B, because the uh, past track record is off as far as forecasting goes. I think one way to think of the Postal Service is that it has a role much like a public utility. It is the only one that can deliver mail. Mail is an extremely important service for many, if not all, Americans out there. The fact that you have uh, utilities today that have been up and functioning uh, for a while, similar to what the Postal Service has been, does not diminish the fact that what they are doing is very important. Paul Steidler, Senior Fellow at the Lexington Institute, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA. Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series, Lessons in Leadership, what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, 
Since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, Great man theory, the leader-follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader, all of these are backward-looking development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I think, I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So what we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your, a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government, it's over 2 million employees. Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace, and they inspired others and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors. And it's drawing like never before on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation, uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee. Uh, he joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service which is unique in in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all. But is anything else you'd want 
the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as, as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for um, three decades. Uh, I've led this is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling, uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And <clears throat> I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime. And uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffles Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.